Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Injernil Ghosh, award-winning author, investor, and advisor to global leaders. Welcome to Impact Unicorns, and today I'm delighted to welcome Glenn Martin of High Up Space to the show. How are you, Glenn? I'm doing very well, Andrew. An absolute pleasure to be joining you on this podcast. Excellent. Glenn is uh, the founder and chief architect of High Up Space, and we'll get into that very exciting hydrogen uh, technology company in a moment. But as always in this show, we want to get under the, the hood of the entrepreneur themselves to begin with. So, yeah, Glenn, um, you're a visionary, you're a scientist, you're a three-time successful entrepreneur going on to your fourth venture. Tell us a bit about your, uh, your, your personal journey. Give us a whirlwind tour of all the amazing things that you've done. Well, I appreciate that, Andrew. No. Uh, so by way of background, uh, born in Canada, uh, raised both in the U.S. and, uh, and Canada over you know, 27 different cities. As a, as a kid, uh, my father was working in construction on nuclear power plants, so we moved around quite a bit. Um, found an early love and passion for aerospace and, and all things uh, airplane and rocket related. And um, obviously had a love of science fiction uh, as a kid as well. Uh, so when I graduated from high school, I went straight into aerospace engineering school uh, in Toronto at Ryerson University and uh, found my way shortly thereafter down to California to work on the International Space Station, which for me was a dream come true. So you're actually a rocket scientist, literally. <laughs> That's what my business card said at the time, and uh, I'll, I'll take that honor. Glenn, it's interesting that you, you traveled around a lot in your early years. Um, probably saw a lot of the world more than many people can, can see in a lifetime. Has that played an important role in you know your life uh, professionally and as an entrepreneur? I mean, you've done so many different businesses. That maybe you can go into that, but it seems like there must be a connection between that that broad early exposure to the world and all the variety of things that you've done. Well, that's an interesting observation, Indranel. Yeah, the uh, you know, as as a child being exposed to numerous different you know cultures within North America, at the very least, um, in in various large and small cities, uh, up and down towards Florida, California, uh, east and west coasts. Um, I did get a chance as a kid every six months, basically, to hit the reset switch, meet a whole new set of friends, uh, experience a whole new culture and, and neighborhood and, and local cuisines. Uh, so I think in, 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 in moving around so much, you, you do learn to appreciate the subtlest of differences between um, locations and people and, and, uh, and businesses. And, and you can see where one business might be very successful and apply. In, in an area that perhaps it wasn't, um, it hadn't been been before. So, you know, as in, in, in experiencing that as a kid, I think that it was, uh, it, it might've been a good training for me as, a, as an entrepreneur to, to, to have done that. So that's, that, that's, that's a very good observation. 
I think when you move around a lot, especially in young in life, you almost have to do a startup on your life every few years. That's got to have a, a build a skill set that comes in later, useful later. It certainly does. If you want to look at it that way, yes. I had a, a new startup, a personal startup every six months or so from the time I was three years old. Now, did you ever have a sense early on that you would be an entrepreneur? Was that somehow uh, a dream or a passion or something that you knew you had in you and it was waiting to come out? Or is it something that you grew into and evolved in? I think it, more the latter. I, I you know... My vision as a kid was that I was going to be a um, spaceship designer. Um, I was really passionate about engineering and design, and and didn't you know wild away my my childhood uh, days at the library and, and sketching spacecraft and doing blueprints and things like that. It re really wasn't until later in my career that I really evolved towards entrepreneurship, simply because you know I wasn't finding in the traditional aerospace industry uh, satisfaction in, in, in doing the kind of work that I really wanted to do, which was really more on the bleeding edge. And so, yeah, by, by necessity, I think I, I became an entrepreneur. I think you worked at Boeing among the many places uh, that, uh, you know, constitute your early experience. Is that correct? And, you know, what was it like working at Boeing? And then what was the trigger point that you said, now I'm going to actually go and do my own thing? Well, you know, actually early in my career, I worked at two English aerospace companies, Rolls-Royce Aero Engines and Havilland Canada, uh, which were you know, sort of the Canadian um, uh, businesses that were established by the two British aerospace giants. Uh, and both of which uh, over time, I'm sorry, Boeing acquired the Havilland Canada around the time I was working there. Uh, then I went to work for McDonnell Douglas, which was also absorbed by Boeing, and then Hughes Space and Com later in my career, uh, which was uh, purchased by Boeing as well. So effectively, I worked for companies that were acquired by Boeing. Um, and then just around the time that I was at this uh, Hughes Space and Com, I, I started to look very hard at to getting into entrepreneurial ventures. And around that time in the... Uh, late 90s, I, I worked with some of the executives at Hughes to spin out uh, a brand new startup company called Protostar uh, that we, um, where we purchased distressed satellite assets and launched them uh, over Asia. So that was my, my first real entrepreneurial venture. And, and what drove you to that? What was the, the trigger point, if you like, that said, you know, I'm, I'm done with the, the corporate world. I'm going to go do my own thing. And part of it is a visionary idea, I imagine, knowing you. Um, but what else was it that, that it was the right time to go and do that? Well, like a lot of things in, in entrepreneurial life, it really was opportunistic. It was an opportunity that was presented to me through some connections that I had made. I uh, left Hughes uh, around the time of the Raytheon acquisition. Um, and Boeing had split it up with, with Raytheon and had met through that process, you know, the, the head of new technology, the CTO, the chair of the board. Uh, so I was honored to have been, you know, sort of in the, uh, the rarest air in the aerospace industry. And, and we, as a, as a small team, 
you know, found our way through a very visionary entrepreneur at the time that I'd met, uh, Phil Father, uh, who had identified these, these hangar queen satellites that needed, you know, they, they had, the customer had gone, um, had gone belly up or bankrupt. And so these, these assets were available for a very low cost. And, and we decided jointly to go after acquisition of these, these, these satellites. And so really it was just, just down to um, an opportunity that presented itself at a moment when I was just really at the end of my corporate uh, career. Now, you went on to do uh, two other startups, which don't seem ostensibly to have anything to do with satellites. You went into uh, solar in 2007, microgrids mm-hmm. in 2013, if I'm not mistaken. Now, mm-hmm. this is pretty early in the life cycle of both of these industries. So um, I'm just curious, you know, how did you identify these opportunities? What was your thinking to be getting in, you know, industries, you know, before they were really recognized as, um, you know, sustainable industries? Well, uh, aerospace is a very advanced field. Uh, generally speaking, the technologies developed for aerospace uh, are in the most rigorous environment you can imagine. Um, and so, you know, it, it, being in that industry, you know, we were exposed to a lot of the very advanced technologies. As one small example, we were using the internet um, and and email uh, early in the '90s, long before the internet really came on the scene in the dot com revolution. Uh, and similarly, we were using 3D printing in the early '90s as well, um, which now has become really more of a, a much more powerful economic force. So we, we, in working in this industry, we, we just simply saw a lot. And, and in, in, in doing that, um, you know, I, as an example, in, in my entrance into solar really came through my contacts at McDonnell Douglas's Phantom Works down in Huntington Beach, uh, reach, reaching out to me when they acquired Hughes. There was, a, there was a solar chip manufacturing component of Hughes called Spectralab, which had the most advanced solar cells on, on planet earth, 42% efficiency, uh, which was, you know, three or four times anything commercially available at the time. And, you know, through that connection and, and some, some other, you know, alignments, I, I got into solar because of that. So really it just gets down to working in an area where you're, you're you know, exposed to these technologies uh, for very specific aerospace applications. And, and they're just before they reach broader adoption in, in the in the global economy you know we, we can we can see the future from from the, uh, the vantage point of aerospace that's very interesting so you have a lens into future technologies ahead of you know other industries and i think that's really uh, uh, a driving force here but you're also you know hinting at the community that themselves maybe start off in aerospace aerospace related but then diffuse into other industries and you can go with cohorts of your colleagues and <laughs> conquer new spaces, if you like. Uh, exactly, exactly. And it's you, you. You do need to find the right combination of skills to, to, in order to do that. And uh, you know, I'm I'm finding these days, you know, now space, uh, commercial space in particular, is very hot, and and there's a whole new. Uh, host of, of young engineers that are coming into the area and, and very entrepreneurially minded and 
and hundreds of startups um, across the board from everything from rockets to to uh, satellite companies. So it's it's just very, you know, the, the, what the vision we saw for the future of space at the time, you know, 30 years ago is really coming to fruition now through through a, a number of different factors and, and, and powerful technologies. Uh, reaching maturation, like artificial intelligence and 3D printing and autonomous robotics. Over the past 20 years, I've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs to build impact unicorns. In my experience, every company that has a transformative positive effect on the world does so by building strong partnerships with communities, investors and governments to solve society's biggest challenges. If you'd like to learn more about how innovative entrepreneurs can help to build a more sustainable and inclusive future, read my award-winning book, Powering Prosperity, A Citizen's Guide to Shaping the 21st Century. Let's switch to your latest big venture, big idea, which is HIOC. Um, I'm very interested in, in, in this you know, project because not only is it bringing some of that space technology to a new area, which is hydrogen. Of course, hydrogen has this huge uh, environmental impact potential to mm-hmm. help decarbonize not just uh, the, the fuels industry, but many, many other industries. Um, mm-hmm. And your company could be at the foref- forefront of that. Tell us how this idea came about and why of all the things that you could have done, you focused on, on this HIOS project. Well, like uh, like the other initiatives that I undertook, you know, it, it was just a thread that I followed uh, at the time. I was, you know, we we successfully built a very very large scale solar plant and 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 sold it. Uh, at the time, we noted that there was a lot of uh, grid instability uh, that that intermittent renewables like solar and wind were creating for the traditional uh, electrical grid, and that's why we got into the smart grid development uh, initiative. And, and, you know, through that, you know, if we're going to be working with a lot of intermittent renewables on the grid, you naturally need a large scale storage. And so we started looking at lithium ion battery um, as, as short term storage. But in, in order to do long duration, there are only really a handful of mature technologies that, that could be used for that. One of them was hydrogen. And, and so we started pulling on that thread, started investigating, started talking to different of the of the hydrogen players at the time. This was late 2019. Uh, and we did note um, that it was just at the moment of inflection. I mean, the, the, the companies that we were talking to in 2019 um, were just you know, maturing. They were maybe 10 years old. Nell Hydrogen, Siemens Energy, some of the other electrolyzer companies were, were, were coming along very rapidly. Uh, and then the, obviously the, the, the large you know, movement at the political and, and global level uh, socially uh, for decarbonization of the entire economy was reaching uh, its peak. And with the Paris Accords and, and the, the carbon greenhouse gas reduction commitments that were being made by national governments globally, um, the, the mandates were coming down that, that, you know, not only generation of electricity had to be decarbonized, but the entire economy, which includes heavy industry, transportation, and and uh, heat, uh, which is a very large contributor to greenhouse gases. So it was a combination of the technologies becoming mature uh, and the mandates coming down for greenhouse gas reduction. And and by combining the two, you know, green hydrogen really 
is the solution for these harder to abate uh, sectors of the economy. That's, that's right, of course. And, you know, the green hydrogen process is, of course, electrolyzing water uh, to generate that, that hydrogen in, in a clean way, assuming, of course, the electricity comes from a clean source, some form mm-hmm. of renewable. So because, you know, about 70% plus of the cost of that green hydrogen production is related to the cost of energy, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of uh, competition around just scale. You know, building bigger plants so you can get economies of scale on the electrolyzers and the site and everything, but also mm-hmm. finding the lowest cost of electricity. So is that all there is to it? Is it just a, a brute force approach? Or what What else is HIOPS doing to go beyond that? Well, that, that's that's very true. We at Hiox, you know, we we took a look at the um, you know the capital costs of water electrolysis. As you mentioned, it's it's seventy two percent right now of the of the cost stack, um, as is the cost of electricity, roughly. Um, and and there are two other factors that really do drive you know the output costs of, of hydrogen. For green hydrogen, right now it's, it's still more expensive than than the the gray hydrogen, the dirty hydrogen that is produced using methane. And so, it, with Hiox, what we're doing is looking at every factor, every stage of electrolysis through liquefaction, compression, storage, and distribution. Uh, and we've noted that there is an opportunity to further reduce the costs by applying very advanced technologies to that entire system of hydrogen production. And, and what, we've, what we've done is assembled a blue chip team of researchers out of the space industry. Uh, we've got a group out of MIT JPL that worked on the MOXIE um, electrolyzer that flew to Mars on Perseverance rover. Um, we're pulling together a team of folks that once again, from aerospace that worked on everything from the shuttle program to the Delta IV rocket, which is a hydrogen-fueled rocket, as well as going back as far as the, uh, the NASA's X-33 program, which had a very challenging composite uh, cryogenic propulsion system. Uh, so we, we feel at HIOX that we can, we can actually bend the cost curve down further than would be experienced over the next 10 years by simple brute force economies of scale and, 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 and incremental improvements in overall technology uh, on efficiency and production output. Yeah, and I think it's more than just cost as well, because the part of the value chain that you're focusing on, which is to liquefy you know, the hydrogen, suddenly mm-hmm. makes it much more easily transportable. And if anything, the biggest bottleneck in, in this whole hydrogen economy seems to be not producing the hydrogen, because if you produce it, close to where there's big demand, like a chemical cluster or a transportation hub, mm-hmm. that already goes a long way. But if you can mm-hmm. actually also move it economically to everywhere else that needs the hydrogen, you've basically unlocked the decarbonization of all the industry. And I think that, I think from an impact standpoint, what's so exciting about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's truly an insight, Andrew That's exactly the balancing act we're going into here, which is, you can, you can co-locate next to a hydroelectric plant uh, far in the north of Canada or large-scale solar down in, in Saudi Arabia, as an example. 
uh, and then ship via liquid or say ammonia also is another energy carrier that we could we could use. Um, but you're right, getting to liquid for long distance shipping uh, is critical path. And we, you know, we're working with various distribution partners in ways, in finding ways to distribute using multimodal um, shipping networks through containerization. So once we get the hydrogen gas into liquid form, we can then put it into these uh, containers and ship on trucks, rail, maritime, whatever modality exists. And so what we've been doing is focusing on deploying hydrogen production facilities at the multimodal nodes. And that is the balancing act between on-site and, and being co-located with the uh, green hydrogen or green electron sources, I'm sorry. Yeah, and so there's that business, but then with the, the, the advanced cryogenics team that you've assembled, you'll be able to go beyond and take that hydrogen in a low-cost way to wherever it needs to go. And, and I think that will be transformational. That is our belief, Indranel, and we we are you know focused on on getting to market in the 2024-2025 timeframe, at which point there will be a massive adoption of hydrogen. Uh, I, I you know in looking at all of the numbers across the board, um, there are, are a number of areas that are simply going to have to go to hydrogen, particularly heavy duty transport and aviation, and in so doing, um, you know finding ways to economically produce hydrogen, green hydrogen at its, at its at the nodes, the multimodal nodes is going to be critical uh, in order to decarbonize these, these, these sectors. Now, in any business, particularly in a startup or venture, uh, execution is everything. So let's look forward a year from now. What would you like to be able to say that you did in, in these next 12 months? Well, going back to my my childhood uh, desire to be a, a designer of spaceships, um, what in one year's time, what we as a company, Hyox Space, is going to be focusing on is uh, development of the detailed technical design of the Xenomorph hydrogen production facility. Uh, and it's going to be 3D printed using AI optimization for the topology of the design. And it'll include some autonomous robotics as well. So we should have a fully realized vision of the of the design and have some prototypes uh, built and and being tested in one year's time. Fantastic! That's going to be exciting. And uh, you're also doing some development uh, work with uh, transportation companies, from what I understand, to actually also start producing uh, and supplying these hubs. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we're we're working with uh, three different partners. Um, I cannot mention names at this point, but I'll I'll give you a broad description of what they're doing. Um, one, and, and really the leading one that we're working with now, uh, is working in the aviation vertical. They are creating hydrogen technologies for fueling of turboprop aircraft, uh, large turboprop aircraft. So. Um, they've, they've come up with a very clever and advanced system um, that, that will um, really revolutionize the way that, that uh, hydrogen is utilized in the aviation sector. And so in working with them closely, um, you know, we believe that we can make a very large impact much sooner 
um, in, in converting um, the aviation uh, aircraft to to hydrogen, both fuel cell and then direct burn into to turbo uh, turbojet engines, um, turbo fans um, these days. But uh, that that's moving very rapidly, and, and again in partnership with them. And we're also working with two other companies: one in the trucking, heavy-duty trucking area, that's that's revolutionizing hydrogen long-haul trucking, uh, as well as another um, partner in space, actually in, in propellant manufacturing, using hydrogen for the creation of green uh, methane, uh, which is to say zero-carbon rocket fuel. Well, there's a lot on your plate, but if anyone can do it, I'm sure you can, Glenn. So, look, thank you for joining us. I'm sure you're well on the way to becoming an impact unicorn, and we look forward to checking on in on you from time to time as you progress. Andrew Neil, it's my, been my absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for having me on your show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking rate this podcast. And join me next week as I talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies.